Uh, 13 years ago, I had a great opportunity before I graduated seminary uh, to go and take a British Baptist history course uh, in, uh, in London, England. And uh, I'll tell you, tell you these guys, uh, Billy Wilson, who's been here before, Al Jackson's been here before. There's, uh, there's me without the beard. Uh, that's Grady Smith. He's a pastor in Montgomery. There's Russ Nuss. We called him Russ Nuss, the love bus. Uh, that, uh, he called himself that. Uh, but anyway, uh, Kevin, who's a college pastor, and Daniel, who's an uh, army chaplain in uh, Japan. And uh, Dr. Timothy Booker uh, from uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we all went, and uh, we went around Easter uh, there to London and stayed with... Uh, with a, a local church there, South Hanwell Baptist Church, and we toured around. This is actually us in front of John Wesley's uh, church, uh, and, uh, and, and then this is all of those people in the picture, minus Dr. Booker and Brother Al, trying to fit in one of those famous British phone booths. Um, and that's me. If you could see this picture, my, my face is smushed against the window, like right here in the front. And so, uh, yeah, anyway, that was a, that was a blast. Um, but, uh, but one, of the, uh, one of the reasons those were such great times was because I was about to graduate seminary. We were excitedly awaiting Gracie's arrival in August that year. Uh, we got to uh, spend an hour with the infamous John Stott, who was one of the greatest Christian writers of the last 100 years. Uh, I got to stand up and, uh, and preach uh, at Speaker's Corner with an apologist, Jay Smith. Uh, that's, that's me over there on the right, and uh, that still happens to this day. And the, the guy on the left is a, uh, a, a Muslim uh, guy who is uh, basically trying to shout louder. Uh, and so that was an interesting experience. But, um, but one of the coolest things that we did there during that time was Jay Smith, that same apologist, had developed a guided tour through the British Museum, uh, uh, British History Museum, and the tour centered around how artifacts in that museum supported the validity of the Old Testament text. You know, we kind of take for granted that everybody looks at the Bible the same way we do. That's absolutely not the case. I mean, for years and years and years, last century, uh, archaeologists and historians believed that there was no real person uh, known as King David. King David was a, a myth. He was a, a legend. Uh, in, uh, in Israel's history until archaeologists uncovered uh, inscriptions and, and different things that had King David's name on them. And, and they were able to date him. And, and they looked at the Bible text and they said, oh, wow. Well, so the Bible was right this whole time. And so Jay Smith said, well, we really need to capitalize on the, the treasure trove of artifacts that uh, are in the British Museum. And so we took a tour through the British Museum and we saw something, uh, this is actually it, it's called the Cylinder of Cyrus. This is a, it's what they call a cuneiform tablet, if you remember some of you from your world history days. And it's basically uh, clay or stone that's been carved. And this was the way that kings, uh, back in the days of the Old Testament, the, not the kings of Israel necessarily, but the kings around Israel, uh, they kept up with history, they made edicts or they, uh, they issued commands, and they would inscribe them in stone or in clay and then fire it and let it dry. And this cylinder of Cyrus uh, struck me because I was, I was 16 inches away from one of the most important artifacts in biblical history. And, and so to help you understand uh, why this is one of the most important artifacts in biblical history, let's remember where we are in our story. So 
Israel was delivered uh, by God from Egypt in about 1446 B.C., and for 500 years they were in the Promised Land. Solomon built a marvelous, glorious temple around 966 B.C., for a united Jewish nation. If you remember about when we studied that about that temple in 2 Kings, we saw just this incredible, I mean, it was, it was, it was massive, it was gold-laden, it cost, uh, who, who knows how much money it would have cost today, in today's terms to build. Uh, everybody contributed. God bestowed special giftedness on people to build that temple. And so uh, that was, for the Jewish nation, something to be treasured. However, if you remember the narrative, uh, Solomon's son uh, came along and divided the kingdom. Rehoboam came along, and, and he was not a good leader. And, and uh, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you remember those names, uh, Jeroboam led a uh, rebellion against the kingdom and established the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel had uh, as its capital Samaria, and they had two temples. And then the southern kingdom of Judah had Jerusalem, and they had the, the line of David's family there as kings in, uh, in, su- in southern Israel, or Judah as it was called. And so the prophets had told them that their covenant rebellion and idolatry would lead them to destruction, right? And that's exactly what happened. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria, and then in 586 B.C., Jerusalem and Solomon's temple were destroyed by the Babylonians. And this, uh, this first Jewish remnant, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a confirmation of Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 14, which listened to the specificity of Jeremiah's prophecy concerning uh, this period of Israel's history. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their great deeds and the work of their hands. And that punishment that Jeremiah is talking about, that punishment on Israel by the Babylonians and the punishment on the Babylonians by an unforeseen nation is exactly what happened as Babylon was conquered by the Persian Empire. And it says this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we'll do, we'll do Ezra next Sunday. It says in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, they had just conquered Babylon, it says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You see the connection there. The Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And guess where history recorded that very thing from Cyrus? And the thing that was sitting 16 inches away from my face. It was just shocking, right? That you have landmark events in Israel's history like the Exodus. And then the building of Solomon's temple. And then the destruction of Solomon's temple. And what king in his right mind would allow Jews to go back and reestablish their homeland? 
That's so counterintuitive to, 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 to these men throughout history that we know that rule with an iron fist and rule in power. I mean, whoever was going to come along and conquer the Babylonians, as evil and wicked as they were, surely that guy would know that you don't let all these people go, that you keep them. Why could that happen? How could that happen? Why could that happen? Why would that happen? Because of Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord stirred in Cyrus the king of Persia. And it was all written right there. You see, these first Jews returned to Jerusalem in 536 B.C. And they were led by a priest named Joshua in some of your translations, but if you've got an ESV like I do, it's Jeshua, which is actually Yeshua, which if you uh, know your your, uh, your, your Greek and Hebrew, at least from an English standpoint, that that's the same as Jesus, right? That there's this Yeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, which is a really fun name to say, who led this remnant back to Jerusalem after King Cyrus decreed that they could go. And so we're going to be saying these names a lot uh, this morning and this evening. Uh, Jeshua, which is easier, Yeshua. But then Zerubbabel, I want you to have the experience of saying that name. So let's say it, Zerubbabel on three. One, two, three, Zerubbabel. Right? A lot of B's in that name, Zerubbabel. And so this journey back to Jerusalem takes place uh, in 536 B.C. and in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. That's kind of funny that Ezra doesn't come in until halfway through his own book, which is why we're doing it next week. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets that God raised up. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so things are looking good for Israel when Haggai comes on the scene. Hey guys, we're back in our land. The word of the Lord was fulfilled. We were only in exile for 70 years, and then the Babylonians were conquered, and King Cyrus said we could go just like Jeremiah said. Isn't that awesome? And so they get to go back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding things there. And this is kind of the point at which Israel's history for us might get a little fuzzy because we, we see the minor prophets and Haggai and Zechariah kind of there at the end. And who, were, they, were they prophesying to Israel to avoid covenant uh, rebellion and idolatry like Isaiah and Jeremiah were? No, they weren't. They were prophesying to the people of Israel who had come back and who were supposed to be rebuilding the temple. They were supposed to be rebuild, rebuilding Jerusalem. And so we're going to see from the book of Haggai that when God's people are supposed to do great things for him, that they are tempted to fall back into the same things that their grandparents struggled with. That this nation of Israel, this this generation of Israel, that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah said, Hey guys, Satan has no new strategies. And so the traps that he's setting for you, if you would just look back at what your, what your father and mother and grandfather and grand, grandmother and, and all those people back in the Old Testament, if you would just look back, they struggled with the same things. And you can be on guard against them so you don't fall back into those same patterns of behavior. You don't fall back into those same idolatries and those same rebellions and those same, those same issues that they struggle with don't have to be your issues. They don't have to define you. And so Haggai and Zechariah stand up and they, and they tell these things. And we'll look at Zechariah tonight, but this morning we're going to look at these four messages that Haggai uh, gave to the people of Israel over a two-month period of time. 
And this message is going to address these four temptations that were faced by Israel and are still faced by us today. And so let's look at Haggai chapter 1 and look at this first message, first of four messages. The first message is this. You've got the wrong priorities, people. You've got the wrong priorities. The way that you're defining your current situation is not the way that God would define it. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, uh, Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And so what we have here is literally, y'all, this is 2,538 years ago this month. We, we know with that kind of accuracy that this was taking place this month in August, 2,538 years ago, that Haggai was prophesying to the people. Kind of, I just, I don't know, maybe I'm a nerd, but that just like, it's kind of cool to me, right? That, that maybe it was like one Saturday morning, because that was their Sabbath, it was one Saturday morning, you know, that, that Haggai stood up and heard this word from the Lord and delivered it to the people. And so, this is the first message of Haggai to the remnant. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I imagine Haggai pointing to the temple with one hand and pointing at their houses with another hand. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And so Haggai speaks on God's behalf to reveal that the Israelites have their priorities out of order. And this is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you're out here and you're worried about nice houses for yourself, but that is not where your identity is supposed to be. You were never meant to find meaning in your house and the size of your house and in the paneling. I guess that was like, you know, uh, what the Joanna Gaines of Haggai's day was suggesting, they, or, you know, the shiplap of their day. Uh, the paneling that's on the wall, some of y'all got that. The paneling that was on the walls, right? They, they were so worried about that. They're so worried about rebuilding their houses. And this is, this just to give you a, help you understand the, the time frame here, this is 16 years after they returned. And so it's not like they step into the boundary of Jerusalem and Haggai was like, get to work, get to work. No. They'd been working on their own houses for 16 years. And Haggai's like, so that's how you want to define yourselves? You really want to be known by your... New paneling that you have? Is that really what God wants for you? I mean, I, I think he would have said to them something like this. Do you not remember the book of Leviticus and Numbers? And do, you, do you guys remember our study? That was, it seems like so long ago. We'll actually finish the Old Testament before the end of this month. You'll, you'll be glad to know. But all the way back in Leviticus and Numbers, when God was telling them about the design of their tent encampment, he gave them the instructions for the tabernacle. Who remembers where the tabernacle was supposed to be in the tent encampment? Anybody? Where was it supposed to be? What, what was the location of the tent encampment? If you remember, it formed a big cross. And right, I heard somebody say, right in the center. 
And you remember, you remember, you remember the, the tabernacle itself had the glory of God in the pillar, uh, the, the cloud pillar that was resting on it. And so it was basically whenever a, a, a Jewish person would step out of their tent, what would they see? They would see the glory of God residing over the temple. And what we saw in the book of Leviticus and Numbers is that the presence of God, the glory of God, is to be the center of our life, the core defining component of our life. And Haggai says, guys, don't fall into the same trap. Don't be so concerned about your own houses that you neglect making the glory of God the center of your life. Don't be so concerned about your own job. Don't be so so concerned about sports. Don't be so concerned about your education. Don't be so concerned about all of these things that you're tempted to be concerned with and forget the one thing that you should be concerned with, and that is, is God's presence the defining component of my life? Is He leading me? Am I trusting and obeying? Am I hearing Him? Am I seeing, seeing His leadership and, and, and not just saying wherever He leads I'll go, but the fa- because the fact is, guys, God's not silent. God hasn't, God hasn't uh, you know, just been, been silent for us like He was silent for Israel for 400 years, like we'll see a little bit later on this month. No, God is, has spoken. And every Sunday, why do we do what we do? Why, why is the pulpit the center of, of our church right here? of our campus right here, because the Word of God is the way that God speaks to you today as we're gathered corporately and every day, which is why you don't just leave your Bible in the pew rack in front of you at church, but you take it home, right? And so he's trying to tell them that is the core defining component of your existence. And so like C.S. Lewis says, and this is, this is a word for us, C.S. Lewis said, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Why does God want us to define ourselves that way? Because when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all those other things will be added to us as well. You see, you were created to be defined by your interaction with the glory of God. And if you do just that, then nicer houses and newer things... They'll be put in their right place. Because as you interact with the glory of God, do you know what your priority will become? It'll become the kingdom of God. You say, well, how does, how does that apply to us today, Ryan? Well, how does the kingdom of God advance today? It advances through the church of Jesus Christ. And Haggai reveals this, uh, a, cr- a crucial point about life in this passage. Look at verse 6. He says, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You see what's happening here? God is frustrating their plans and their pursuits of satisfaction because their hearts are focused on the wrong things. That's what verse 6 is telling us. God's the giver of joy. God is the one who bestows satisfaction upon His people as they rightly relate to Him. And so, why is my job unfulfilling? Why does it seem like everything is going wrong, one thing after another, after another, after another? Why, why, why is it? Why is it that I can't seem to get a break? We hear people talk like this. 
Why does it seem like the moment I get ahead of my savings account, if I even have a savings account, right? Why does it seem like the moment I get ahead there that the AC goes out, right? You see, in some cases, spiritual warfare. In some cases, it's just the brokenness of this world. But in a very real sense, it could be because God's trying to get your attention you see, for a lot of people, the core struggle is money, right? And Jesus knew that. And so what did God do for Israel to help them understand about the right priority, the right prioritization of their money? He told them to tithe. Tithe literally means 10%, right? Literally means 10%. And so for us today, an application of Haggai's passage, and we'll see it again in the book of Malachi, this was an important thing in this, in this day, for for Haggai and the people of Israel and for us, an important application point is, are you declaring with obedience, with submission, are you declaring in worship that, God, you are sovereign over my finances? And listen, guys, you can't create your own way to do this. It's, one of, it's not one of those things, it's not like a choose-your-own-adventure book, you know, where you get to a certain point and God says, okay, go have fun. Like, turn to this page if you want to make this decision. If you want to make this decision, go to another page. No, he says, if you want to declare your dependence upon me with your money, then tithe. 10%. And, and some, of you, some of you Bible scholars will say, well, hey, Ryan, I, I have a problem with that because, listen, we're under grace. We're under grace, not the law, right? And so I don't, I don't think that has bearing on us. You're right. That's a floor, not a ceiling. You get it? So if the Spirit of God is inside of you to fulfill the law through you, then, then 10% is just the start. You say, why are, why are preachers and churches always talking about money? Well, I'm not Joel Osteen, okay? I think, I think I've established uh, that enough, right? But can I, can, I, can I get to the heart of that question? The heart of that question is that you don't like anybody telling you to do it with your money. But here's the problem with that. Imagine if you were bankrupt. And you got a call from a rich relative who's on their deathbed, and they invite you to come to their bedside, and you do that. In your rags, you sit there, and they say, Hey, um, I've got a considerable estate. I want to give you $5 million upon my death. The only condition is, is that I want you to uh, give away 10% of it to this cause every year. How asinine and outrageous would it be for you to look at them and say, how dare you tell me what to do with my money? You get it? It's not your money. <laughs> it's not your life. It's not the breath in your lungs. It all comes from him. In fact, a little bit later on, he's going to say to the people of Israel, all the silver and gold is mine, guys. If, if you've got dollar bills in your bank account, you may have worked hard for them to get there, but guess who gave you the life and energy to work hard? You, you may, listen, you may struggle with tithing, understandably. Because that is a God-ordained check upon the idol of money in your life. And so if you struggle, join the club. 
But if it's worship, and if he's worth it, then obedience is the only option. So tithe your money. Tithe your time. Tithe your talent to the work of God as a declaration of his supremacy in your life because that is the key to finding satisfaction and contentment. It will escape you as long as your priorities are out of order. And the church will suffer as well. And that's a sermon for another day. Wrong priorities is the first. The second, unhelpful comparisons. Look at chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day, this is one month later, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And so a month after Haggai delivers his first message, the people have done well. They've responded in obedience, but morale becomes low because the elders in Israel remember what the first temple looked like. Now here's, a, here's something for you. This was Solomon's temple, and all of its splendor and all of its glory with all of its gold. And when the, the people of Haggai's day started working on the temple, they call it the temple of Zerubbabel, it looked like that. Just stone and brick, not a lot of gold there. Right? Now this is going to change when Nehemiah comes on the scene, because... Basically, uh, the king looks at Nehemiah and gives him a blank check, says, whatever you need, tell me, I'll send it. That's pretty cool what God's going to do. But this was the temple. And here's, in Ezra chapter 3, Ezra uh, gives us insight. It says, in the, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this temple, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, so they're excited. The Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, they're excited to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But get this. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that's Solomon's temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And so that's why Haggai asks in, in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? That is Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? And he says to them, He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. I think that's great. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, God tells the people of Israel, I own everything, so just trust my providence. That is, trust what I've provided for you now. I've given you just what you need to faithfully fulfill your calling. You obey and leave the results to me. 
And I, I, would, I would wager that some of you in here experience the exact same types of discouragement facing the people of Israel. You experience those same things today. You say, it's not going to matter if I blank. It's not going matter, to matter if I tithe. It's not going to matter if I serve. It's not going to matter if I witness. It's not going to matter if I attend. It's not going to matter if I prioritize. It's not going to matter if, that, if I serve in that ministry. It's not going to matter. That's a lost cause. No one's going to notice. It's not going to make a difference. We'll never be like that church down the road with their awesome kids ministry, youth ministry, fill in the blank. We'll never be like them. And if you continue to think that way, you're exactly right. You see, the body of Christ can't run a race with a broken foot. We can't climb the mountain in front of us with fingers that won't reach out and grip. You see, the most important question that each one of you can ask today is this. Why has God put me here? Why has God put me here? And if you can't answer that question, then you need to respond to the invitation today. Come talk to me this week. So they had misplaced priorities, they'd had unhelpful comparisons, and they were ignoring the plain call to obedience. And I'll just summarize this one for the sake of time. But one month after the second message, so this is now two months later, Haggai comes back and addresses something else. The people are working, and that's a good thing, kind of. And basically what he does is he engages the high priest and says, hey, uh, back in the book of Leviticus, if a person touched a dead body and then came and touched something else, what happened? And they said, well, the deadness transferred to the, to the new thing, right? That's why you had all of these cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. And he says, well, has that changed? And the priests say, no, that, that hasn't changed. And he says, then why are the people expecting to do the work of God and it make them holy when that was never the way it was supposed to work? He said, the people of God in their unholiness are actually contaminating the temple. And so this idea of ignoring obedience basically says, don't attempt, to, don't attempt the work of God or expect to receive the blessing of God if you're ignoring the commands of God. Don't attempt the work of God or expect to receive the blessings of God if you're ignoring the commands of God. Now, that's not to say stop doing what you're doing. That's saying check your heart. Because joy and satisfaction come from intimacy with God, but sin separates us from God. And that's why J.I. Packer said happiness can only come from holiness. They were ignoring obedience. But lastly, they had a misplaced hope. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. He had a misplaced hope. The word of the Lord came, this is the same day, by the way. So the word of the Lord came a second time. It's talking about the second time on that day. So he had one message, August uh, 2,538 years ago, one month later. So September 2,538 years ago, he had another message. And then October, another message. And then that same day in October, he preaches again, which is not, I mean, I'm going to do that tonight, but I'm not going to do it continuously, right? So... So the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th month, day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. And so the leader, Zerubbabel, is declared as God's representative. 
And so the big question looming over the people of Israel as the book just honestly abruptly ends is, is this the Messiah? And that's where the prophet Zechariah comes along, having been revived by the prophecy of Haggai. That's how it all ties in together. Zechariah comes on as like a 20-year-old kid, and he begins to prophesy, and it gets crazy. So if you're one of these people who really like eschatology, like you like uh, the book of Revelation, like come back tonight at 5 for Zechariah, because Ze- the 12 uh, chapters of Zechariah are, are filled with it. It's all based, a lot of it's based on Zechariah's dreams, and just like your dreams, Zechariah's dreams get crazy. <laughs> and so, so come back tonight for that. But essentially, here's what Haggai is telling them. People, let's not forget, let's not forget that God's plans and purposes are for us, but since God is bigger than us, His plans are also bigger than us too. Our call is not to know everything. Our call is not to be everything. Our call is to be faithful where God has put us, with the people He has put us with, and with the resources He has given us. And so what have we seen today? We've seen four temptations, right? We've seen... We've asked the question of, are your priorities in place? We've asked, uh, have unhelpful comparisons to other people frozen your obedience? We've asked, are you treasuring God in your service? Are you trying to serve God in hypocrisy? And then lastly, we've asked, where is your hope? Is it in the results that you expect God, maybe even demand God to bring you? Or in the kingdom that He has promised that He will build through you? And I'll just end by saying this, obedience is your choice. That's the, that's the main thrust of the book of Haggai. God's called you to a work. Don't feign confusion. Don't feign the, 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 the reality that while your family is important, that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, is the one by whom redemption is coming upon the nations. And so let's not, let's not say, well, I don't know. I don't know what God's called me to. I don't know if I'm supposed to be in ministry anywhere. I don't know if I'm supposed to be a member of a church anywhere. I don't know if I'm supposed to be baptized. I don't know if I'm supposed to read my Bible. I don't know if I'm supposed to tithe. I don't know if I, you know, that, that's what we do, right? We just, I don't know. I don't know if that's my calling. I don't know if that's my whatever. And we spiritualize this language to cover up what? Our disobedience. And so obedience is your choice. God is the greatest treasure, and the call to obedience is a call to delight. And so that leaves the question, where is God calling you today? Make no mistake, God is not calling you to pain as much as He is calling you to life. May that be what we pursue with all of our might and vigor today. Let's pray together.